again, I, or watch, or know, or she, I have done what is righteous and just. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Ensure your servants' well-being. Let not the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail looking for your salvation. Look for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your love, and teach me your decrees. I am your servant. Give me discernment, I, that I may understand your statutes. It is time for you to act, O Lord. The law is being broken, because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right. I hate every wrong path. Good stuff. We got uh, uh, Sergio's watching things today in Israel to make sure that the live stream doesn't kick out. He put in some type of a program because last week we had trouble, but we'll hope that it just lasts. And uh, we'll, uh, if it doesn't, that's okay. But uh, we can. It'll be recorded anyway. But uh, let's see here. We're going to go ahead and read this day in Christian history. Today's the twenty-first of May. 21st, and let's see what it says here. The loss of a brother gave the world a song. In 1868 in Scotland, Elizabeth Clefane wrote a poem called The Lost Sheep, also called The Ninety and Nine. It depicts the good shepherd leaving his flock of sheep to find the one that was lost. Sixteen years before, Elizabeth's brother George had left the family and gone to Canada. There he collapsed on a country road in a drunken stupor and died the next day. Elizabeth had often thought about the story of the good shepherd fantasizing that Christ the shepherd had found her brother the lost sheep before his death. When asked to contribute a poem for a Christian magazine, she wrote this poem out of her grief and hope for her brother's salvation. In 1874, D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, and Ira Sankey, his song leader, went on an evangelistic tour of Scotland. On May 20th, the two women were on their way to Edinburgh for two days of meetings. Sankey picked up a newspaper called The Christian Age to read on the train. In it, his eyes were drawn to Elizabeth Clefane's poem, The Lost Sheep. Its words moved him deeply, and he thought it would make an excellent evangelistic hymn. He enthusiastically read it to Moody, but then realized that Moody was busy reading a letter and did not listen to him. Nevertheless, Sankey ripped the poem out of the newspaper and began mulling over tunes in his head. The next day, May 21st, 1874, the theme for the meeting at the Free Church Assembly Hall was the Good Shepherd. Moody and several other ministers spoke. The audience was deeply moved by the truths of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. After the messages, Moody, as chairman of the meeting, turned to Sankey and said, have you a solo appropriate for this subject to close the service with? Sankey was startled to be put on the spot and quickly tried to think of something. At this moment, I seemed to hear a voice saying, Sing the hymn you found on the train. Sankey thought this was crazy because it was a poem without music, not a hymn. He had not yet had time to compose a tune. Moody and the audience waited, and again the thought came, Sing that hymn. Sankey recalls, placing the little newspaper slip on the organ in front of me, I lifted my heart in prayer, asking God to help me so to sing that the people might hear and understand. Laying my hands upon the organ, I struck a key of A flat and began to sing. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care, away from the tender shepherd's care. 
After the first verse, Sankey was afraid the other verses would sound different from the first, but he prayed, and the Lord gave him the same tune for the other verses, note for note. His voice was triumphant as he sang the final verse, but all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the crocky, rocky steep, there arose a cry to the gate of heaven. Rejoice, I have found my sheep, and the angels echoed round the throne. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. The rapt audience was overcome with emotion, as was Moody. He said, Sankey, where did you get that hymn? I never heard the like of it in my life. Sankey replied, Mr. Moody, that's the hymn I read to you yesterday on the train, which you did not hear. And they ask, or they say, the Lord's, the Lord seeks his lost sheep and rejoices when they are found. This story spoke powerfully to Elizabeth Clefane, Ira Sankey, D.L. Moody, and those present at the meeting on March, May 21st, 1874. What does it mean to you? Are you a lost sheep or are you safe in the fold? And they cite Luke 15, 7. Heaven will be happier over one lost sinner who returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. All right, we have, uh, oh, very quickly, I have, didn't write down much. I did get a prayer request today, though. Uh, ben, who we prayed, I think, for on Sunday, baby in the NICU, was on oxygen. And good news, he's off oxygen. But bad news, he's developed a heart murmur and jaundice. Uh, Mom is going to be leaving the hospital, and she has to leave him in the NICU. And they're asking for prayer that we would uh, uh, pray that he would get well quickly and they could be together. You know, it's always good to have a baby with his mother at that early stage. And it can't be great sitting in a bed without anybody taking, you know, holding you and giving you what you need at that size. So we'll definitely pray for that and for mom and dad and the grandparents as well. I know that's stressful on them. Uh, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, lift up this little child, this baby Ben, and we would pray that uh, your hand would be with the family and with the doctors and the nurses and all that are associated with this situation so that that baby would be just up and doing handsprings in no time and uh, uh, would be able to go home and uh, keep mom and dad awake every night crying and asking for food and doing all the things that babies do. It would be wonderful to hear this good news, Lord, and we'll just leave that in your capable hands, praying that it will be so and for relief for the family. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would bless this time here in this service and uh, that anything that is said that is not according to your will, that it would not be uh, retained in the minds of the people that uh, attend, but rather that they would uh, uh, just uh, absorb that which is right and proper and that uh, their edification in your word would be increased by today's study. We pray this, that you will be glorified and that these people will be built up in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15. Let me back up to 14. All right. Paragraph. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 15. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Okay. Oh, it ends right there, doesn't it? Okay. 
Um, all right, let's see. What did uh, this one says? It says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Okay, yeah, that's very close. All right, let's see here. Paul had just noted that the parents should save up for their children, as he considered the church at Corinth as his children in the faith. He explains what this means then to him. It wasn't just saving up a bit and considering the job done. Instead, he says that he will very gladly spend and be spent. The Greek word for spend is dapano, is used to indicate the incurring of an expense or even to waste one's money entirely. It is used that way in Luke 15 in the parable of the lost son. He wasted all of his money in a foreign land and became needy. This week, uh, I was cleaning the mall, and I think it was Tuesday, I found a $20 bill. And then on Wednesday, I found a $20 bill. I know. And uh, both days, I found lots of coins around there, too. So somebody's wasting their money. They're, they're, they're being frivolous with their money. Now, one of the people I know who it is. And uh, if I see him again, I will make sure he gets his money back because it was inside of a cigarette pack, you know, that people put in there, and then he just threw it on the ground after he smoked his cigarettes and drank all his beer. He's a homeless guy that lives there. So I know it was him. But uh, anyway, if I see him, I'll hopefully be able to tell him not to spend it on beer and cigarettes, but whatever. Um, and maybe I'll never see him again. But uh, unbelievable. Two $20 bills, and the other one was in a separate place. Well, three weeks ago, I found another one in the back of the mall. So it's just, it's, people are not being careful, and this is what that word happens to spend, so it came to mind. But, uh, I mean, it's not always that way. I can get a dry patch where I don't find anything for a couple days, but uh, normally I find coins, you know, here and there. And, you get grouchy. Yeah, I get grouchy when I don't find <laughs> it. You know, the one that always gets me, and this happens a lot, because, you know, I go through all of the garbage cans every single day, and uh, I... Um, uh, take everything. I pull out all the recycles and I separate them. And I called my mom at, uh, last week, was it, I think. And I said, you know what I found? I showed you guys. It was on a Saturday mission work. So it was two weeks ago. If somebody had thrown away, still wrapped up. They were all wrapped up. They threw away a hand-painted painting of Benjamin Franklin about this big on ivory, dating back to the 1850s. Yeah, scrim, uh, no, it wasn't Scrimshaw. It was a painting on ivory. Oh. And it was valued at $225. It still had the uh, the label on it. And then there were two uh, copper, hand copper poundings that were uh, 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 of the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's face. And they were obviously a part of something. And they're, they're, they're hand pounded copper. And they've got to be worth quite a bit too. And somebody just threw them away. And I called mom and I said, you know, the world has gone insane. Why would somebody even do that? But anyway, that's what you get when you go rifling through the garbage. But the one that always surprises me, I, I don't care how many times this happened, it happens a lot, is you'll see uh, $5.87 in a plastic bag thrown away. And I know what it is. is somebody gives their daughter $10 to go get something at the drugstore, and the daughter doesn't care. She didn't earn it. And so she buys what she wants. She takes the money and puts it in the bag, and she throws it away. And it happens all the time. All the time I find money in the garbage where people just, they throw it away. So if there's no sense of value. There's no sense of uh, of earning something. And somebody had to earn that. But anyway. They know you had a big visa bill. It, yeah, I have a big visa bill and that helped pay it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that we have here. This word, dapanao, is that people are wasteful, okay? 
and uh, they spend. And like I said, that's the one that is used in Luke 15, the parable of the lost son. So there you go with that. And I'll, I'll think of some more things that have happened at the mall, and I'll tell you throughout the, the uh, class tonight. But that's just a couple of how people can be so wasteful. Anyway, um, uh, adding on to that, the thought, he uh, next uses the Greek word ekdapanao. It is the same word with the prefix ek, which means out on it, attached to it. Thus, it is to be completely exhausted or to spend out completely. It is used just this one time in Scripture, and it is given to show the length, the great length that Paul was willing to go to in order to minister to the Corinthians. In this expenditure, he notes that it is for your souls. He wasn't worried about their physical needs, their desires, or any such thing. Instead, he was concerned about their spiritual relationship with the Lord. To him, this is where his efforts were to be focused, and it is evident from his letters that this is exactly where his heart and intention were directed. He finishes this thought with, the more, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. This is certainly a rebuke towards them. The more attention he doted on them and the harder he worked in order to not be any burden to them, it appeared that they came to love him less. There seemed to be an increasing ingratitude in them that welled up with his continued attention towards them. And that goes back kind of like the girl that gets something from dad and she throws it away. There's this increasing ingratitude. The more you give to people, the more they want. And I can attest to that from the projects. And I know I'm going to get some smiles from a couple people that know what I'm talking about. But if you go to the projects and say, I work at 7-Eleven, right? And so once a year, the lady's very nice. She gives everybody a turkey usually for Thanksgiving. And Hidako gets a turkey from her job. And so we don't need two turkeys. And so I'll take it downtown and I'll give it to somebody. And I'll say, well, your neighbor, who we also go visit, um, make sure you give her some for dinner. And then the next week I won't be talked to. I'll be ignored. And because I didn't give her a turkey when all I had was one turkey and I gave it to them and told them to give, share it with her. But this kind of thing happens all the time. You go to the projects and everything in their life has been given to them and they expect. It's not that they uh, think anything beyond the moment. So if you give one person something and somebody else sees that you give it to them, like say you take a flower to somebody that's sick, the neighbor will get mad that they didn't get a flower. Am I right about this, guys? I see lots of head shaking here because we all have seen this. And so there's a point where you just say, is it worth even helping people? But you have to get over that because they're different than you are. But the ingratitude of the child, that's completely different. That kid never earned anything in his or her life, and they're just throwing away all this money. Having said that, before I go on, because this just came to my mind while I was reading this, if there is somebody here, and I'm talking about uh, streaming online, that likes Benjamin Franklin, if he is like one of your heroes, and you can uh, validate that to me, I will give you that painting. I'll send it to you, okay? It's a beautiful little thing. It's about this big, and it's in a frame about that big. And if somebody else is a fan of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, okay, if you have uh, something in your life that says, I have memorabilia with Abraham Lincoln, then I will be happy to send you that as well. And it's probably worth quite a bit. I would think it's hand-pounded copper. Anyway, totally up to you. If somebody emails me, and I'm not going to get in a fight with anybody. It's going to be the first email that comes in. But um, and I, I, you only have one thing to give away, and I'm not going through it like I did in the projects. But I don't need those things. I just hate to see them wasted, and they're really beautiful. So if that's something that actually has a meaning to you beyond the value itself, 
then uh, they're yours. Not but now, but I have to find out whatever Oh, I, I yeah, I'll tell you about that Maybe later. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, uh, there you go with that life application. Paul's words in this verse. Um, I didn't finish my thought here. Um, it says, um, I'll read the previous paragraph again so you know where I was at. He wasn't worried about their physical needs, their desires, or any such thing. Instead, he was concerned about their spiritual relationship with the Lord. To him, this is where his efforts were to be focused. And it is evident from his letters that this is exactly where his heart and attention were directed. And then he finishes the thought with, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. This is certainly a rebuke towards them. The more attention he doted on them, the harder he worked in order to not be any burden to them. It appeared that they came to love him less. Oh, I did read that. There seems to be an increasing ingratitude in them that welled up with his continued attention towards them. So I did read that. You can download all that second thing. Uh, just forget it. Anyway, um, life application. Paul's words in this verse show us that there should not be a set of scales in front of us as we minister to others. If there were, when the balance is tipped to one side or another, we would change our level of attention and devotion each time we encountered them. If you, for example, do mission work in the downtown slums or projects, you can never expect any sort of reciprocity in your care of the downtrodden that you were ministering to. It's not going to happen. Very, very few people will ever return a favor to you down there. Now, some people will, and there's a couple of them that are very good prayer people, and it's not often, but we'll say, would you pray for us today? And there are some real great prayer people down there. You'll get that, and you know, you will get thanks from some people, but for the most part, it's just not in them. They haven't been raised that way because they've been under the government's thumb for the past you know, two or three generations. And so if you are going to minister to somebody, you have to say, I'm doing this because I love the Lord. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing to do or for whatever reason, but you're not going to get a lot of anything back from them, okay? As a Bible teacher, you may be teaching the spiritually downtrodden in the same manner. Why would you expect them to respond with a great return on the spiritual lessons you impart? Be willing to expend everything for those you minister to. The Lord does see, and he will reward. Okay, this is Paul's attitude. This should be anybody's attitude. If you're going to minister to somebody, it ought to be with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and say, no matter what, this is what I'm going to do. All right? It, it's just the attitude you need to have at the beginning because, you know, some people get into the ministry to get rich. Some people get into the ministry to be powerful and to have, you know, control over a congregation, whatever. But a true calling to the ministry is saying, I'm going to do this. And it doesn't matter if I have two people there or if I have 2,000 people there. And it doesn't matter if they give or if they don't give. That is what you need to do. Anyway, um, 12, 16. Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you yet. Craftily, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Okay, this is a little different. It says the same thing, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. So kind of close, but uh, they say crafty fellow. He just says he's crafty here. So there you go. Paul's words, be that as it may, are based on his previous words, which said, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Despite the attitude towards his loving demonstrations, it was his continued stance to not be a burden on them. 
That is what we at the projects have to do every week. We have to say, you know, no matter what, we're not going to be a burden on these people. We're going to try to take care of their burdens. And I, I'm going to be honest. I've had people that have emailed me or, you know, said, you know, how can I start a ministry like that? And I say, here's what you do. You go out and you do it. And I said, don't expect anything. Don't expect anything. Because if you're expecting anything when you go out there, you're probably going to fail after the first month or so. You're just going to say, I'm not getting anywhere. You go down there and you just keep doing it. And uh, Tom knows he started this 14 years ago and he's missed, what, four Saturdays in 14 years. And that was all for him to go up north to uh, to uh, help his family. Okay. But um, in those 14 years, there were how many how many years where nobody would say anything to you hardly? I mean, you know, I'm talking about a new person. You establish a relationship and you have somebody to talk to, but there'll be more people that you see throughout the years and they won't talk to you for a year or two. You just, you, there's nothing. And then when you do get to know them, you, there's no real feedback. You're just there taking care of them. So if you're expecting something out of a ministry like that, then you might as well not start it at all. Okay, so um, read that again. Despite uh, the attitude towards his loving demonstrations, it was his continued stance to not be a burden on them. Okay, what you need to do is you need to say that this is what I do. I'm going to stick to it no matter what. And it's like anything. You know, I type a Bible commentary every single day, and I don't look at the website. I, You know, a website will normally give you all the information. How many people have been there throughout the day? How many have been there throughout the month? How many have been there throughout the year? What pages have they read and all that? I don't ever look at that kind of stuff. I type the Bible commentary because I think it's the right thing to do with my time. I do it every single day. I don't care if people comment. I always appreciate it, and I answer their comments. But if they don't, it doesn't matter. I do the Bible commentary because I think it's the right thing to do. And you have to just stick to it. Even if nobody ever reads the thing, you just stick to it. Same thing with anything else. You just have to say, this isn't about me. This is about what I am presenting. Okay. This, we're also doing Oh, yeah. Now we're, yeah, these are actually the Bible commentaries that I typed. Two Corinthians was probably eight or nine years ago. So maybe a little less, maybe seven years ago. But now it's part of a Bible study. But these things here, I mean... I'll probably be dead before we finish whatever commentary I'm typing at a certain point in my life. And it just is there. It's going to be there and either people are going to read it or not. But that's absolutely right, though. It's kind of beneficial because I don't have to prepare for Bible studies. I did it years and years ago. I just read it to you and throw stuff off the top of my head about finding money at the mall and it makes a Bible study. Okay, this is contrary to the nature as most people would simply give up after a while. As I said, that's like the projects. But Paul knew that changing his tact and accepting assistance from them could only make things worse. And so he determined to continue to be no burden on them at all. The I in this clause is emphatic. I did not burden you. This leads to, to us to understand the words of the next clause. As he emphatically asserts that he didn't burden the Corinthians, then there is another option which he must refute. He does so with the words, nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. These words would be as if he were quoting them. Yes, you were no burden on us, but you deceived us in another way. You have announced that you want to take a collection to the saints in Jerusalem, and you have sent others to collect it. However, we are sure that you will profit at least in part from the collection. This is a possible charge of the false apostles, which then infected the minds of the Corinthians. 
Paul, showing them the silliness of such a charge, will defend against it in the verses to come. He has been careful to handle everything in the most professional and open manner possible in order to avoid the very conflict that he is now addressing. As a way of shining light on the words of this verse, the ISV, the International Standard Version, I think is what it means, and God's Word translations both change it into a question rather than stating it as a fact. Instead of, I caught you by cunning, they translate it this way. Granting that I have not been a burden to you, I was a clever schemer who trapped you by some trick. This clears up any misunderstandings by the reader who may assume that Paul actually acted in a deceitful manner. The reason why this is important is that if Paul acted in deceit, then it would imply that he was an acceptable means of acting to achieve one's goals. In essence, the ends justify the means. Such is not the case with Paul's words, okay? Before I go on, ends justifying the means. In theology, the ends never justify the means. That's all there is to it. Whatever your ministry is, suppose somebody has a ministry and he wants to get people saved and so he makes up uh, uh, speaking in tongues in his congregation, okay? And people say, ooh, that's exciting and I want to know more and they come to Jesus and if it's not true, then it does not, the end does not justify the means. If somebody is not to be a preacher and that person is preaching, in, which is not in accord with the word of the Lord, and somebody comes and is saved through that ministry, it still doesn't, the end does not justify the means. And I'm talking, it's good that the person got saved. I'm very happy that they did, and I'm sure that that person is happy that they're going to spend eternity with Jesus. But the person who did that contrary to God's word will get no rewards. I can guarantee you that when you stand before the Lord and have done things in disobedience and you go up to him and say, well, see, I got this person saved. If it was in an act of disobedience, the Lord cannot reward you. That would be contrary to his very nature. He cannot justify sin in order for a good outcome to come about. So keep that in mind. What you are doing, make sure that you're doing it on the level. I'm going to do everything in accord with God's words because if it's not, you're wasting your own personal time. You may be helping somebody else. But as far as your rewards, as far as your right standing with the relationship, it's not being increased at all. Make sure that what you do is in accord with the word of the Lord. And the only way to do that, anybody? Know the word of the Lord. Thank you. I got somebody pointing at the Bible there. That's exactly right. Okay, life application. One needs to understand when irony is stated or when some, uh, someone is writing words as if they are spoken by another. This isn't always easy to do, and even learned scholars who understand the original languages will often disagree on what the actual intent of a verse is. <clears throat> this is a good reason for us to read many translations and to diligently study the writings of many scholars. In doing so, we can get a better sense of what is probably the correct interpretation of some very difficult verses. And I say that because I've said this before, and I can say it many, many more times, is that um, uh, you can have people that were trained in the original biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, and they know them perfectly. They know perfectly what they say, okay, as well as the Greek speakers or Hebrew speakers did, and far better than most of the Greek or Hebrew-speaking people today, because the people that speak Greek today, when they read the uh, Koine Greek, they can't even read it. It's like reading a foreign language to them, and that's the same with modern-day Hebrew speakers. They read the Bible, and it's completely different. Not completely, but it's enough different, like 
We read um, the King James Version. I'm talking about the original 1611. You can't even read it. You don't know what it's saying it, because it's just so obscure. The words are spelled differently than they are today, etc. Okay, you go back even further to Wycliffe. It's still English, but you read it and you think, what is this guy writing? So <clears throat> the uh, point is that you have these people that are perfectly trained in, we'll say, Greek. They both know the language perfectly, and yet they will come to completely different conclusions about what the word is saying. And that's because they've uh, got a presupposition, maybe. Maybe they have an idea about something from the Old Testament that this person hasn't thought of, etc. And they both can't be correct, and they both could be wrong, but at best, one of them is right, at best. Or they could both be wrong, but they both cannot be correct. Okay, anyway, so um, it's important to not just say, oh, that person knows Greek, and therefore I'm going to follow what he says, or oh, that person knows Hebrew because of that I'm going to follow what he says. That person may not know the Bible at all, and you've made a big error by going through and following them just because they know Hebrew or Greek. Keep that in mind, and a good example of that is something that just today I was doing a study on uh, Judges chapter 5, and it says in Judges 25, I'm sorry, 521, um, there's a reason why it's doing this. I wasn't doing it for a study or anything. I was doing it because somebody is going to this river, the Kishon River, which is in Israel. And they said, we're going to go to the Kishon River. And I said, oh, that's in Judges uh, 4. And it's also in Judges 5. And uh, they said, yeah, so we're going to go see that Mount Tabor and some other things. And so I uh, thought, well, I'm just, I got maybe 45 minutes or so until Burke came in and interrupted my Bible study. And, kidding, Burke. Anyway, um, I was sitting there studying Judges chapter 5. And one of the verses, it just, it's so wonderful. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, oh my soul, march on in strength. Every single translation that I looked at, there was about 22, I think, translations that I looked at, and they all said the ancient torrent, okay? That ancient torrent or the ancient torrent or whatever. One version, the Good News Translation used a different word. The word comes from, uh, the word is only found that one time in the whole Bible, Kedumim, I think it was. Um, and it comes from the word Kadam, which means to face or something like that. And then you also have a similar word, which is Kedem. Kedem means east, okay? But if you've watched the, uh, the sermons, you know that East also means before times. In other words, uh, ancient times. And the reason why is because the sun comes up from a place that's unknown. And so it's from eternity. And therefore, when you hear the word Kadem, you can think of eternity or ancient times. So this word here, Kadumim, which uh, is used one time in the Bible, comes from Kadam, which means to face. It's also aligned with Kadem. So the translators of every translation have aligned it with Kadem ancient, the ancient torrent, except the Good News Translation, which says the on-rushing torrent. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Because when you face something, it's rushing at you, right? Okay. And it makes much more sense. Listen to it with that translation instead of ancient. The torrent of Kishon, which means, by the way, snarer. So you've got a picture there, a snarer. The torrent of, and another thing, the word torrent is uh, the word um, nahal. Okay, that word nakal is a wadi that is dry, and then when the water, when it rains, the water rushes down there. It's not a regular flowing river, it's a torrent, because the water rushes through it. That comes from nakal, which means to inherit, okay? So you can make some pictures out of that. But for right now, it's a torrent. It's water that's rushing down that is not always flowing. Sometimes it is, and it really flows, okay? 
that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, the snarer. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry. That Instead of saying that ancient torrent, it would say the on-rushing torrent. So everything about it, if you take that translation, which I bet you is what is on uh, Deborah's mind when she wrote this poem, wasn't ancient. It's on-rushing because everything about it, the torrent of Kishon, the snare, swept them away. That on-rushing torrent, the torrent of Kishon, the snare, everything is like taking away. Isn't that something? So when you read the Bible, don't just read one translation. I'm talking about if you're reading it to read it in a study. I'm not talking about if you're just reading it in the morning. You get up and you read it. And then what you should do, this is just Charlie Garrett's recommendation, is when you read your Bible at lunchtime, because I know that you stop and take a lunch break, and you will read your Bible during lunchtime, you should use a different Bible. And then you can read the same passage again, or a different passage, but if you read the same passage, you're getting a different idea of what's being said. And then, of course, I know that everybody gets a three o'clock break, and so what you do is you have your third Bible handy, and then you read a different translation at three o'clock. And then when you go home and after dinner, before you go to bed, I know every person here reads their Bible at night. And so now you're reading your fourth translation of the Bible. My mom said, you bet. You do this every day and you will get a much rounder idea of what scripture is telling you. If you're captivated, as it says in the King James uh, original preface, captivated by one translation, you're in bondage. You're binding yourself up. They, they say that in their own preface. How much better it is to get a wider sense of what the word says. And when I read that, it took 22 translations to get one that I believe is actually the proper the proper uh, translation because everything about that verse is rushing, marching, snaring, and then you have a word that says ancient. It doesn't even match the rest of it based on the word kadam instead of kadam. So there you go, my little thing about that with you. And um, so we'll go on now. You got the ISV translation, okay? Um, I'm going to read that last paragraph again, then we'll get into life application. This clears up any misunderstandings by the reader who may assume that Paul actually acted in a deceitful manner because of a different translation giving a different view about it. And we don't want people confused when they're reading the Bible, okay? So um, this, uh, the ends would justify the means, and such is not the case with Paul's words. Okay, life application. One needs to understand when irony is stated or when someone is writing words as if they are spoken by another. That's important. This isn't always easy to do. Oh, I've read this. And even learned scholars who understand the original languages will often disagree on what the actual intent of a verse is. I'll stop there because I already read that life application. But just so you're aware is that the more that you read the word and the more you read different versions of the word, you will get some really interesting insights uh, that are maybe you've never thought of before. And one person, especially Robert Young, he does this a lot. Robert Young is the most precise translation I've ever come across. It's very hard to read. It's old English. But if you want to know really, really precise translation right out of the Hebrew and the Greek, you want to read Young's literal translation of the Bible. It is marvelous. Okay. Darby is as well. Darby did his own translation. It's a very good translation. Um, there are some things that are kind of questionable in there, but Young's is... It's really outstanding. Anyway, go ahead, 1217. <laughs> Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? Okay, this one's a little more formal. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Okay, concerning this verse, Charles Ellicott notes, the English expresses the meaning of the Greek, but does not show, as that does, the vehement agitation which led the writer as he dictated the letter 
to begin the sentence with one construction and finish it with another. So he writes, did any of those I sent, did I by this means get more out of you than I ought? You can see the, the frustration in his words. He's actually probably angry as he's saying this for the scribe to write down. Then the scribe is just writing what he's saying. But Paul is truly upset at the implied accusation which appears to have been leveled at him from the previous verse. That said, nevertheless being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Concerning those people he sent, it could be referring to Timothy, who was sent before the writing of the first letter, which is back in 1 Corinthians 4.17, or it could be referring to Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who carried his first epistle to them. That's in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 17. Or it could even be speaking of Titus, who was sent to determine the state of those at Corinth, and that's in, found in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. He is, in essence, asking them to tell him how they were swindled. Which of them did something improper on Paul's behalf under his instruction? The word he uses for take advantage of is pleonaketeo. It gives the idea of fraud. Paul is asking them to lay out on the table all their cards and to show how he was involved in such a thing. He knew he, that he was not, and he is trying to get them to consider the matter. Life application. Far too often, those who teach spiritual matters faithfully are attacked by those who disagree with their doctrine, even and maybe especially because their doctrine is sound. People attempt to find wiggle room in what they believe because the Bible forces us to live in a manner which we may not like. The devil wants nothing more than to distract and disarm those who carry the word of God faithfully to others. Unless there is a true mark of exceptionally bad doctrine, it is better to not accept any charges of false conduct by others who may have a set agenda, like the false apostles who came to Corinth to malign Paul. 1218. I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Okay, this one's way different. I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? So, of course, steps, same idea, but widely translated. Okay, this is probably not referring to the upcoming visit recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Although some scholars claim that it is, saying that he is writing in an already done manner. That's called an epistolary aorist, when you write something as if it's already done, when it's actually ahead of you. Okay, epistolary means from an epistle, okay, aorist means that it happened at a set time, okay? So it's a way of saying that this happened at a set time, even though it hasn't happened yet, okay? Instead, this is probably referring to Titus's earlier visit to them. Concerning that visit, Paul asked them to reflect on his behavior while there. He had come with our brother, his words, our brother, meaning someone well known to them who could then substantiate to the character and demeanor of Titus. The King James Version incorrectly says a brother, not acknowledging the article which precedes brother. Even the hour of the new King James Version is too vague. The article literally, the brother, conveys the meaning, our mutual brother. The definite nature of the person is highlighted to show that he could be checked with 
for confirmation of the conduct of Titus at any time. So there you have, I was talking about that five or eight minutes ago about translations and getting a different sense. And we've got two translations which do not do the Greek justice, okay? The one that I usually use, and I always use the New King James Version, not because it's the best. People ask me that, why do you use that? It's because I want to be standard. I just want to be consistent in all of my studies and in the sermons. When I deviate from the New King James Version in a sermon, I will highlight it in, maybe not in my spoken sermon, but in the written sermon, it will say NIV or whatever, because I want you to know it's a different translation than I'm normally using. But you want to make sure that you check these things out with varied translations, because one may be correct when another is incorrect, or as I said, they could both be incorrect and you have to find another, which actually gives the true reading. It takes hard work, it takes study, it takes determination to really find out what is being said. Eventually, though, it will come out. Okay, to draw out a defense of how Titus actually conducted himself, he asks, did Titus take advantage of you? The question is rhetorical. Paul knows very well he didn't, and they will have no other response to it than no. Titus certainly never did a thing while among them that could be considered in this light. Continuing on, and still in defense of Titus, he asks two more rhetorical questions. Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? The answer to both will be in the affirmative. Just as Paul had conducted himself before those at Corinth, so did Titus when he was there with them. Both Paul and Titus had maintained the highest level of integrity before them. Therefore, Paul is asking them to consider the false apostles' accusations from that light. Where, they, where had they done wrong? Where had they offended? Where was their manipulation of the Corinthians? None could be found. Life application, Paul wisely chose a brother who was known to both parties when he sent Titus to Corinth. In so doing, he could act as an impartial witness to what occurred if there was ever a need to do so. Such forethought can, at any later time, prove that all was done in an above-board manner. Let us remember this type of action in case we ever find ourselves dealing with a similar sensitive matter. All right, 1219. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. Everything we do, dear friend, is for your strength. Okay, that's kind of wordy. Let's see here. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. A little bit shorter. Anyway, um, it, that's the NIV, right? Yeah. Okay. They got wordy on that one. They did. Yeah, it was. That was yeah. All right. That's okay. I mean, it's the NIV is, uh, just so you know, you got a difference. This one, the King James Version is supposed to be a uh, more a literal translation. It's not, but that's the idea. It's more literal. Okay. And then you get what's uh, called dynamic equivalence. You've got an idea and an idea, and it may not even be close, literally, but, you know, um, how would, what would be an idea? The, the chair is brown, and uh, I, that wouldn't work. I'm trying to think of, you have an idea that matches an idea in two different languages, and so they write it that way, okay? That's dynamic equivalence. Um, like when you, uh, you're doing Bible translation in an area where they don't have sheep. Oh, yeah, that's right. And they don't have sheep, and so you would give an example of a animal that you know does the same function okay or if you have a wagon with this being pulled by uh, a cart and it's being pulled by what a bull an oxen and but there's no oxen over in uh, 
Papua New Guinea or whatever, uh, then you would say a water buffalo. Yeah, okay. And so that would be more that way. It's not a literal translation. And some people will argue, well, you've changed the word of God. And other people would argue they have no idea what you're talking about. You have to not only uh, teach them instruction in the Bible, but now you have to teach them entire life concepts. So people argue over these things. They get dogmatic over these things. In the end, the concepts are usually probably the better uh, sense in that regard. Now, in the here in America, we are so swamped with Bibles and we're so swamped with theology that we get narrow-minded. Okay, we have all the same concepts brought into our minds that came from Israel two thousand years ago. So we don't question these things. We know what a sheep is, even if we don't have a sheep in Sarasota, Florida. Okay, we know it's been brought into us for our whole life, and we happen to know. But other people around the world have no idea what you're talking about. You talk about some of the things in the Bible. They wouldn't know what a desert is in Malaysia to save their souls. I'm telling you, they couldn't even comprehend it. It's the most lush green place on the face of the planet. And so for how many uh, years before there was people actually TV and all the things that we now have so that we don't think anymore is they had to think of something. It, they probably I don't know what they would have translated a desert as in uh, uh, Malaysia or Indonesia, but there are no such thing. I mean, those people wouldn't have any idea what that is. No, oh, there you go. Whatever. Okay, 1218. Uh, let's see here. We'll continue on. To draw it, uh, I'm going to read the last sentence so you know where I was. The definite nature of the person is highlighted to show that he could be checked out for confirmation of the conduct at, of Titus at any time. Okay, to draw out a defense of how Titus actually conducted himself, he asks, did Titus take advantage of you? I read that too. Oh, are we in 19? Okay, all right, I'm way back up there. That's what happens when I, thank you. You got to correct me because I get talking and we get an idea and then she interrupts my train of thought. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, you all know I'm kidding. Okay, yeah, blame her. Blame the person in the back. Okay, 1219, Paul begins this verse with again. All right, he is probably referring back to 2 Corinthians 5, 12, which said, For we did not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. He's not making a defense for himself and those with him to the Corinthians as if he were trying to curry favor with them. Rather than such a thing, which would certainly be looked at as if done with improper motives, he affirms that we speak before God in Christ. This phrase is an interesting clue as to the nature of the Trinity. Before God in Christ means that he is acceptable to God and thus able to make his appeal before him because he is in Christ. He lives within Christ, having received his finished work. There is a nearness to God because of this position. So much so that when he speaks, God is a witness to his words, judging them as to their sincerity. As this is so, then the Corinthians should view the words in the same light. And those words are not words of currying favor. Instead, they are sincere and without motive. They are simply the way things are. Instead of trying to ingratiate themselves to the Corinthians through inappropriate means, he says that we do all things, beloved, for your edification. The charges of the false apostles had attempted to show Paul as an opportunist and one who couldn't be trusted. But instead of that, he did everything for those at Corinth 
It was to build them up and to bring them to a state of sound doctrine and holy living. That's what I got off on the tangent, is that particular uh, thing right there because of the wordiness of the NIV. That's where I, yeah, see, I got to watch when I start talking because I get lost in my, my thoughts kind of off on the... We'll put you in straight. Yeah, well, you do. You always correct me, so that's good. I mean, I, the guy that takes care of the website, that guy corrects me constantly. I type up these devotionals. And, you know, I have errors in thinking. I'll say something backwards, you know, because I'm typing at a different speed than I'm thinking. And so I'll be thinking something and I'll say something exactly the opposite of what it should be. Exactly. And he'll say, you know, this is completely botched up. And so he's always bailing me out. And then, you know, it, he checks every day everything I type and you forgot to close the quotes there and you forgot this there and you forgot that there and I'm so thankful for that because even what I do is I type these I typed one today I'm not going to look at it again for 10 days and I'll find all kinds of errors in there all by myself and then I run it through two different word spell checkers and that finds more errors because I'm typing and I'm just not really worried about spelling at the time and then I'll send it to him and he'll find 25 more things and so it's been completely reviewed and then I'll post it on Facebook and the Superior Word website, and the next day, as happened yesterday, Jim will correct another one. You forgot the Y on the word they. So I could, this could go on and on and on, the number of corrections. And so I appreciate everybody that helps me with these things because I'm not there to worry about the, the uh, spelling as much as I am getting the concept out of my head. But when I'm getting the concept out of my head, I can get it completely reversed and so even that needs to now, be looked at one thing that you've never encouraged well maybe you have but like it's just something i don't think about when i'm doing a daily devotional thing if you make reference to you know another book in the bible and another verse i'll i will not go look at that i'll just take your word for it that that's it and you'll do this at the study here oh yeah and you'll go to find and it'll be completely I, I i will be looking at uh john 13 18 when it's actually john 12 18 because 12 is on this page and 13 is here and i see the 18 and i think it's 13 because it's at the top of the page i do that all the time so i yes people need to check and then correct me because if not once it's done i mean it's got to be completely redone because then you got wade who puts these on pdfs and it's one entire file yeah. like oh just listen i gotta say this I announced this before, and I haven't announced it since then. Wade and Maya, both of them sat down and put everything that I've typed, every sermon, every commentary, everything, into individual PDFs, and we uploaded them to the website. And I told people about that. But if you uploaded or went to those and saved them, you need to go back and resave them because they didn't just do that. They have now put in tags so that if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 14, all you do is you type, you don't have to type anything. They've got all, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, all the way down. They've got them all listed. All you do is click on that, and it takes you right down to 1 Corinthians wow. 4. They have done a ton of work. These two people, Wade and my, I I, I can't believe the amount of work. And what was it? Uh, Genesis alone is over 2,000 pages long, and they went through all of that. And they've done Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They're, they've done Ruth and Esther, and then all of the New Testament. They've gone through thousands and thousands of pages just out of the goodness of their own heart i i just can't thank them enough for that anyway no it's just amazing all right so this, uh, this week though this week what you have you, you capitalize his in a, in a sentence then you need to tell me don't tell me now don't tell me now it's capitalized here but over here a little later in the sentence it's his again and it's 
I told him not to tell me now. I'm not going to know that. You have to send me an email and tell me that's supposed to be capitalized. You, on, on the, 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 uh, you, you have to correct me the, because if the, not, I don't see these things. The I'm places not, where you, just like you said, all right. if it's 16. Not going to do me any good now because I wrote 27 things in well, the past week and he's referring to one of them. Can so. I refer you to Pandora's Box? Pandora's Box. There you go. There you go. He just referred me to Pandora's Box. Okay, we got to get back into this verse. This is an important verse here. Um, so, uh, there was no hint of impropriety in Paul's actions or in the actions of those whom he sent to minister to them. In all ways, their conduct was to be considered pure and with only the good of those in Corinth in mind. Okay, uh, it, before I give you the life application, in Christ, I don't know how anybody can come to the conclusion that you can lose your salvation. I cannot understand that when it says you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are no longer Apart from God, you are in Christ. He made that decision, as Jim said before class today, before any person that is alive from after his crucifixion was born, for 2,000 years, knowing all the sins that they would commit after coming to him. And if you can lose your salvation, every single one of those people for the past 2,000 years would have lost their salvation. Every single one of them. Everyone, not, not some of them, not maybe most of them. Every one of those people would have lost their salvation if you could lose your salvation. You are in Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're given a guarantee. It is a promise of God, which that if he takes away your salvation, then he lied and he broke his promise because the covenant is he is responsible for it, not us. Okay, he is the one that's people can't seem to understand that when you look at Israel, Israel has been unfaithful since the the moment that they left Mount Sinai, long before they got to the land of Canaan, they were unfaithful all the way through their history. They were exiled. They were returned. They were unfaithful. They crucified the Lord. They were exiled for 2,000 years, and yet God has kept his faithfulness to them, despite them. They, as a people, are a picture of you, an individual. They are a template of salvation. Yes, Jews are lost. I'm not talking about individual Jews. I'm talking about Israel is the covenant the one that the covenant was made with by God. They made the covenant with him. When you enter into the new covenant, you have made a covenant with God and he has made a covenant with you. If you can lose your salvation, then God can reject Israel and he has never rejected them and he will never reject them and he will never reject you. And not all Jews. And not all Jews. That's right. That's exactly right. That is a collective group of people picturing individual salvation. Okay. The individual under the old covenant is different than the individual under the new covenant. Okay, yes? It is not our salvation. It's not. It his it's salvation. his salvation granted to us. That's right. Psalm 51 says, Restore to me the joy, joy of, of your salvation. Your it salvation. says in Romans, what I have committed to him against that day. Right. I have committed to him. He's, he's the keeper. He's the keeper. He's, he's the, the keeper. one that it is in his blood. He has yes. made it. He will not revoke it. I don't understand how people can't get that. I, I, I cannot get it. But Do you think? Uh, do you think Reformed Covenant theology, it seems to be getting the larger hearing more and more. More and more people I hear discussing theological things these days seem to be coming from that. Well, they're, they're vocal. They're, yes. they're vocal. They've got a loud voice. They've got a lot of churches. There's a lot of denominations that teach Reformed theology. They're very vocal and they're wise. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good There's theology. Of good. There's a, they they have a lot it of good apologetics, but they 
have completely botched several issues, completely botched them. What is free will? I don't, I, I don't know how they can make that error, but they have made that error, and that leads to other problems. And so it, it's just something that people just have to evaluate. They have to pick up the word. And one of the things that I tell you is there are certain doctrines that when you pick it up, if you just read the word without ever being told anything about it, no presuppositions at all, you will never come to the conclusion that you don't have free will. You will never come to that conclusion. You will say, God has given me the free will to choose this. There's no way you're going to come to another conclusion. You have to have that trained out of you, just like you have to have the rapture trained out of you. Okay, there are certain things that are just obvious on the surface, but whatever. Okay, life application. Paul's affirmation that his words were before God in Christ should be a sobering reminder. Oh, did I read that? I did, didn't I? Maybe not. I'll read it again. Sobering reminder to us that if we are in Christ, then we are being looked at from that standard. Oh, yes, I haven't read it. Our words are to be pure, our actions are to be noble, and our hearts are to be undefiled by impure intent. We are representatives of God and should always consider that in our interaction with others. It's hard. It's very difficult. That's why I say every one of us would have lost our salvations because we all fail at what I just said. I'm putting you to a very high standard in these commentaries, but I understand that we all fall short of the standard of the word, all of us, okay? So when I say this, this is your high calling, as Paul would call it. This is the high calling. We're, we're attempting to meet that high calling, okay? I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. You want to see somebody that fails the Lord every single day? Just look at the guy in the camera right now, okay? All right, 1220. I'm afraid that... When I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you might not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts, anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. That is a long verse. Now, That's wordy, not the wordy, wordy. But it's not wordy. It's just like this one. It's not just that it's extra words. I'll read it again so you can see the differences, but it is a long verse. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish. And that I shall be found by you, such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. So they're both long. It's not a wordy. It's just that it's a long verse. Where is the longest verse in the Bible? It's in the book of, begins with E, ends with Esther. That's right, the book of Esther. It's what? Esther 8-9. 8-9. It's a very long verse. It goes on and on. It took, what, I think three sermons to get through that one. Uh, one I'm kidding. Isaiah took her out for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> she 8-9. She 8-9, gotcha. Isaiah 8-1 is the longest Isaiah, word. Isaiah 8-1, yeah. Mahar Shalol Hashbaz yeah. is the longest word. 8-1 and then Esther. Yeah, okay, there you go. Just unbelievable. Okay, but this is a long one for the New Testament. This is a long one. Okay, uh, 1220. Paul has already alluded to a visit with the Corinthians in several ways. In 2 Corinthians 123, he said that he specifically refrained from visiting in order to spare them. His words now bring in that same thought. If he comes, things might be in chaos and he would have to take apostolic action. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21, he asked if he should come to them with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness. It seems that any coming visit would be one of anxiety for him, not really knowing what he was to expect. And once he got there, he was anticipating the worst. He says, I shall not find you such as I wish. He would hope for a pleasant visit with a group of people dedicated to Christ and hungry for sound doctrine. 
And in like manner, he was afraid that the Corinthians would find Paul in a manner that they wouldn't wish for as well. He would come with a rod of correction as necessary, and he would come to redirect them from their many failings too. If this is what he found, then this is what he would come to do. From there, he mentions the failings that he was fearful he would find, beginning with contentions. This word gives the sense of quarreling or strife. It is those who are looking for a fight simply because it is their nature to engage in such a thing. I know lots of people like that. They want to argue simply to argue. I worked with a guy like that at the wastewater plant for years, and he's a great guy. But it doesn't matter. If you said, I like Donald Trump, he would say, I hate the guy. And then he'd go out and vote for him anyway. And if you say, I uh, like uh, strawberry ice cream, he'd say, that's the worst ice cream made. It didn't matter what you said. He would take the opposite, and it was grating. And that's what this is speaking of here, contentions. It's people that just want to argue for the sake of argument. He doesn't care about chocolate ice cream or, or strawberry ice cream. He cares about needling people. And like I said, he was a great guy, but you had to get over that particular thing. And it was hard to do. He you know, alienated almost everybody in his life. But at the same time, if you got through that kind of weird thing and you just ignored him on that, he's pretty good with other things. Anyway, uh, they are the type to divide people into factions for the sake of disharmony rather than harmony. Next, he notes jealousies. The Greek is zelos, and it is the root. And the root it comes from means hot enough to boil over. Thus, zelos is an onomatopoeia that mimics the sound of water bubbling over from heat, zelos, 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 kind of like the sound, okay? They would indicate those who were disposed towards defending their own views regardless of the cost. In other words, uh, I, I'm completely wrong. I know I'm wrong, but I am not going to be proven wrong. And so I'm going to argue my point ad nauseum. I'm just not going to stop doing that. I'm just going to keep arguing until I can't argue anymore. Next, he mentions outbursts of wrath. Literally, it says ras. It's plural. Paul was expecting people to be lashing out at one another as they defended their position. Instead of harmony, there would be chaos because of this negative attitude, which would spill over into much anger. He also notes selfish ambitions. According to Health's word studies, this word properly means work done merely for hire as a mercenary. Think of a mercenary instead of a soldier. It's somebody that goes out and fights somebody else's wars for money. Okay, that's a mercenary. It would thus be referring, therefore, to carnal ambition, meaning selfish rivalry. That's helps word studies. People would be willing to defend another side simply because whatever gain they could get out of it. Okay, uh, Burke is completely wrong, but I can benefit from it, and so I'm going to support him in that. And that's what people do in churches all the time. I know that you've seen it in whatever church you were in in the past, and you'll see it again a million times, is that somebody may be wrong, but I can get an advantage in this church by siding with Burke instead of this person over here, okay? Or I'll, I'll stop picking on you and I'll say I'll siding with Jim this time, whatever. Okay, so, but you see what I'm saying? People do this, and that's what happens. And it's not just church. It happens in workplaces. It happens in families. It happens all the time. This is the human nature, and there are people like this. They have this perverse thing in them that they just want to side with the people that will benefit them. After this, backbitings are noted. The word is katalalia, and one can almost hear the intent in the word. It is only used here, and in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, it gives the idea of evil speaking, backbiting, detraction, and slander. Let's just say bad things about people for the sake of saying bad things about people. 
Whisperings are Paul's next area of concern. The word is, and it's a big word, siturismos, but it begins with a P, like pneumonia. Yeah, I can't do pneumonia. Anyway, but anyway, um, and this is its only use in the New Testament. The sound is adapted to the sense. It indicates secret slanders. It speaks of the murmurer of a snake charmer. These come from people with devil's forked tongue. Okay, so they're speaking like this, and then they have that sound coming out of their mouth. Okay, next are conceits. They're, uh, again, a word unique in the New Testament, not found anywhere else is given. It is fusiosis, fusiosis, and it means inflated like an air bellow. Okay, you can imagine a person like that, inflated like an air bellow. It thus gives the idea of being puffed up, then it conveys the sense of arrogance and negative pride, which then fosters an inflated ego. All right. Finally, Paul finishes with tumults. This is the type of thing one would expect in a riot. It gives the idea of generating confusion, being out of control, and having everything up for grabs in this uncertainty and tumult inevitably generates more instability. People going into a church and just trying to weaken the church for the sake of weakening the church. There you go with that tumults. Paul certainly had a lot of worries concerning his visit as he pondered what he might find there at the dysfunctional church at Corinth. Charles Ellicott notes that the list forms a suggestive parallelism of contrast to that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11. He also says that the ethical imagination of the apostle with its keen perception of the shades of human character, dwelling now on the manifold forms of opposition as before it had dwelt on the manifold fruits of repentance. So he's showing a contrast between the two. I like Charles Ellicott. He gives very good commentaries at times. Sometimes he doesn't comment on anything, like maybe he never got to that book of the Bible. Or he'll give one comment on one verse and he won't go on for, you know, 25 verses, you won't see anything. So uh, you can tell where he was uh, probably, he started here in the Bible and then he eventually got here and he got very good in this particular book. Adam Clark does the same thing. Adam Clark will give great commentaries and they'll kind of disappear for a while. And he'll give one comment, a very long comment on a verse that I wouldn't even bother with almost. It's just, it's funny how we all uh, operate differently, but I love to look at these people's work because these are some great, great scholars and as I said, if you look at the time they lived in, go back to the 16, 17, 1800s, John Gill, 16 and 1700s, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have the internet. I can do now in 30 seconds what it took them hours and hours and hours and hours to do with books. They had books, libraries, and they'd say, well, where was they? And they had to remember all this, and I've got to go refer to this. And they pull out the book, and they, you know, it's getting late at night, and they've got candlelight, and they're doing this work. And I think these people have given us enough information where I can now read their commentaries and I can actually come up with something that's okay on Sunday. Not okay compared to what they've done. I mean, these are really great people, but they've done good work. And I just, I so appreciate the effort that these men went through to give us literally commentaries on the entire Bible in their lives. 30 years, some of them took 30, 35, 40 years to make a commentary in the whole Bible. And you know, some of them, you can see where they went back and revised it later. You know, I, I, it's just amazing to see the amount of work that these people did. And James Strong. I mean, how long did it take James Strong to do Strong's Concordance of the Bible? 33 
years. We can print off a concordance of a new translation of the Bible in three hours. Every single thing done and then printed out and sent out with the Bible in a couple of hours. And no no work necessary. It just does all the work, generates it by itself. So amazing what people could do back then. Life application. How alike the church at Corinth are many churches today. People seem to revel in one sort of perverse conduct or another. Let us keep ourselves in check and not add to the grief that pastors already face as they are pulled in a thousand different directions at once. Instead, and I wasn't a pastor when I typed this, so I'm not saying this for my sake, okay? Although I can empathize. Instead, let us listen to the words of Paul and take them to heart. Instead of strife, let us pur purpose to be filled with peace. Okay, I got a question. You got the longest uh, verse in the Bible. The shortest verse in the Bible is actually in the Old Testament. It's somewhere, I think, in Chronicles. It's like one name, okay? It's just very short. But New Testament, what is the shortest verse in the New Testament? That's correct. What's that? Everybody said Jesus wept except uh, Jim, and Jim said it depends if it's English or Greek. If it's in English, what's that? 5.16. Yes, okay. In the Greek... Rejoice evermore is pantote charete. That's it. That's the shortest. In the uh, English, it's Jesus wept. But in English, it's, uh, I'm sorry, in Greek, it's edruxen idakrusen ho Jesus. Okay. Is that right? Idakrusen ho Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, it's much, much longer. Anyway, it took me a while to remember that. But Moral of the story. Take notes. Yeah. Take notes. <laughs> yeah. It's... It, it's much longer in Jesus' web. So you want to remember, Burke is correct. It's uh, 1 Thessalonians, what did you say, 5.16? 5.16. Rejoice always. That is in the Greek. Okay, in English, it doesn't really matter because we can translate it into uh, uh, Japanese and Jesus' web might be this long. I mean, who knows? So anyway, um, I'm, I could ask Kitako and she'd tell me. But yeah, in the Greek, that's it. In the shortest in the Old Testament, it's just like one name or something in Chronicles somewhere. But thought I'd give you that just so you have it for a future oh, reference. Single name verse. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it just. Were like yeah, but, yeah, but the guy, whoever did the verses, he was breaking them down according to a structure. And, you know, there's real purpose. I'm going to tell you something. There is real purpose in the way that the chapters in. Uh, verses are divided. One of them, for example, in the book of Acts ends on a semicolon, okay? Even in the Greek, it's not a natural place to end it, and yet it ends there, and it goes into the next chapter. We talked about that when we did the book of Acts, okay? But I will tell you that if you look at the structure of the Bible, as it's broken down in chapter and first divisions, and I know people will disagree with me on it, I am telling you the Lord's hand was on those people as they did that. Okay, the original chapter divisions were done by a guy, I think his name was uh, Cardinal Hugo Sancto de Caro. I think that's correct. And he, they do not use his. They use the chapter and verse divisions from Robert Stephanus, which was first published in the Geneva Bible in 1560. Okay, and I can assure you that those chapter and verse divisions, he didn't do the chapter divisions, he did the verse divisions based on chapter divisions other than uh, de Caro. Anyway, if you go through the Bible, you will find patterns that are impossible, impossible to not have been divinely inspired. And they could not have happened unless we had the chapter and verse divisions that we have now. I've done a study on like the, the book of Matthew. 
every single chapter in Matthew. There's how many chapters are there in Matthew? 28. That's right. The first 28 books of the Bible have patterns that match the 28 chapters of Matthew. Oh, uh, it's amazing. I, I'll tell you like one of them right here. Um, uh, Daniel, book of Daniel. What did they do with um, uh, Jesus when they put him in the tomb? No, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, what did they do with uh, G uh, uh, Daniel compared to Matthew? What did they do with Jesus when they put him in the tomb? They sealed it. It says they sealed him. Okay, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, they uh, threw Daniel into the lion's den and they sealed it. Okay, now that, that could be uh, haphazard. It might not be. But if you go through all 28 books, you uh, who had a vision in the book of Genesis? Joseph had a vision. Who had a vision in the first chapter of uh, Matthew? Joseph, okay. It, it, you're going to see these patterns go all the way through. Some of them are numerical. Some of them are word. Some of them, uh, Isaiah does this. How many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 66, okay. Um, uh, how many books are in the true canon of the Bible? 66 books. And those chapters match the 66 books of the Bible in a particular particular way many many times i'll give you an example isaiah somebody go to isaiah chapter um what do i want go to isaiah chapter 40 somebody go to isaiah chapter 40 yeah and then when you get there read me uh, uh chapter 40 um is it chapter 43 chapter 40 verse 3 what does that say verse 3 the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way for Okay, then go to Matthew. Um, is it Matthew? No, the 40th book of the Bible is John, is it? And wait, um, no, it's Matthew. Go to Matthew, 40th book of the Bible, and go to chapter 3. Matthew, go to chapter 3. And what does it say? Where? Just read the first verse. Okay. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one. Christ. So there you go. You got 40, and you got 40, and you got one, or three, and three, or whatever. Anyway, and you'll see that all the way through there. It is. It's interesting. And I can understand that if you have one or two of those, you could say, Well, that's by chance. But when you have literally every one of them in the book of Matthew matches the 28, first 28 chapters of, or I'm sorry, yeah, the first 28 books of the Bible. And then the book of Luke does this. One of my friends, Vince, up in Minnesota did a study on the book of Luke, and it is way, way more than the book of Matthew. I, the patterns are astonishing. I'm telling you, the Bible is inspired intricate. all the way through. It is so intricate. It is so marvelous yeah. to see that when you see these patterns, I mean... We live by faith and not by sight, but God has given us revealed light. So we're not stepping into darkness when we have faith. We're stepping into God's revealed light. I, if you want to see the study from Matthew, just go to the Wonderful One uh, uh, website, and it's on there. It's Treasure in Matthew or something. I don't know what it's called. But anyway, you can see that there, and you can see all kinds of other stuff that I have on that old website. But I kind of stopped doing that because now I'm typing sermons, and I don't look for patterns the way I used to. But we got a pattern coming up in this week's sermon. we got a fun one coming up in uh, Deuteronomy 3, 12 through 20, until the Lord has given us rest. I found a pattern in there which will be presented in the sermon. It helps you to understand what is going on in the uh, the. Uh, 
the sermon and the passage itself. You wouldn't get it without looking at that pattern. But once you see the pattern, you say, oh, now I know what the Lord is telling us. So the, the Bible is, it is the word of God. No doubt about it. Okay. Pattern thing that we used to look at a lot more than like, yeah. Oh, that's okay. one of them. Yeah. So, so if, if there were no uh, verse delineation, would they... They, they're still in there. The verses sometimes don't even... Chiasms will show you all kinds of things. They won't just show you uh, this word matches this word. They will show you this thought matches this thought. Right, okay. They're really astonishing. So um, anyway, and I, I got a couple chiasms coming up here in some sermons very soon, but one of them will be, now that you've opened your mouth, it will be this no, Sunday. No but that one, that one is shit. one that I found for the sermon. Some of the other chiasms are those that I found years ago, and I'm going to apply them to the sermon. But, and, and you know, I, I regret it because some of the Exodus and Numbers sermons, I had found chiasms years ago, and I forgot to include them in the sermon. So whatever. Anyway, we've got to go on. 1221. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieving, grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Okay, that's a little more wordy than this, but it says the same thing. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced and this is a good verse to stop on anyway because it's the last verse of chapter 12 we got one more chapter and we'll be done with that in no time next week probably okay paul just spoke of his coming and the many possibilities possible difficulties he expects that he might face upon his arrival in addition to those things he repeats the notion of his coming and an expectation that he will be humbled among them he is writing as if it is a pretty certain thing that this will be the case. He was a faithful pastor, presenting them with the gospel, and they received it. However, being saved carries more than just walking through the doors of this new life. It also involves the purging away of the old life. He will be humbled because the, they only grasped the salvation, but then failed to put their salvation into practice. Because of this, he says, he shall mourn for many who have sinned before. The word before is taken by scholars in a couple of ways. One is that it speaks of their lifestyle before being saved. The other is that they fell into sin since then, but before his coming to them. The first seems more natural. They were saved by Christ and yet never put their salvation into practice. Either way, the idea of his words is that they were already saved offenders. Once again, another note for eternal salvation. He's writing the people that have offended. They've offended and they keep offending. Okay. What happens when you don't live for Christ after being saved? Rewards and losses. Yeah. I, you were going to say it. I shouldn't have interrupted you. Sorry about okay. that. But yeah, that, that's all it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I think starts in 11 and then 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it tells you exactly what happens for those that don't measure up in their salvation it never says ever i would like somebody that can tell that says you can lose your salvation i would like them to tell me where they find that because you're not going to find it it's not a principle that's taught in scripture ever it is not taught and the verses that are taught are taught because they're taught incorrectly okay especially with hebrews chapter 6 but there is no place in the new testament that says you will lose your salvation it is foreign as a concept to the bible Okay, after he says this, and have not repented, meaning changed their mind about their sin, 
This shows that repentance is necessary for right living within the church, but it is not necessary for salvation. The categories are far too often mixed by people in the church. In essence, their call is repent and then be saved. I did an entire sermon on that just in the 10 Doctrine Sermons that shows you very logically how that is impossible. You cannot repent and then be saved. You're saved and then you repent of your wrongdoings. But anyway, this is not proper doctrine. Salvation is one category. Repentance is another. We are to repent. There's no doubt about it. But you cannot repent in order to be saved. It's impossible. Okay, if you do, you are the one that is earning God's favor. That is contrary to, what is the gospel? Somebody tell me where the gospel is recorded. 1 Corinthians 15, Thank you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It is very clear what it says there. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. If you believe that, you are saved. That is it. If you add to that, it is not the gospel. That is it. You, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ if you add to what that says. Paul tells you how to appropriate that in Romans 10, 9, and 10. But the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, implying I'm a sinner, that Christ was buried, proving that he died, and that Christ rose again, proving that he is God. That's right. He's without sin. He is God. Okay? Because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's the gospel. If you add to that, it is no longer the gospel. That's going to be coming up in the one John... Uh, devotionals in the next 10 days because John says exactly the same thing that Paul says. Exactly. Okay, he says it differently, but he says the same thing. So we'll go on. It is illogical to say one must repent in order to be saved if salvation is by grace through faith. It is also illogical to say that one will lose his salvation if he doesn't repent. The reason for this was found in Paul's words. He never tells them this would occur. Instead, he shows in his writings that the consequences for failing to repent will result in difficulties in this life and a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's it. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Next, Paul identifies three categories of sin which required correction, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. The uncleanness indicates impurity of some sort. Their defilement is because of their lifestyle. Fornication is related to pornography or sexual impurity. Helps Word Study says that it indicates to sell off properly a selling off, surrendering of sexual purity, promiscuity of any and every type. And the word for lewdness indicates wanton caprice. Paul was afraid that these were still being practiced among the congregants, and yet he never says, you guys have lost your salvation. Please leave the church. He doesn't do that. Okay, going on. There, um, where was I? Yes, uh, Vincent's Word Studies notes that the three categories of sin should be connected with Paul's mourning and not with the repentance. In other words, I shall mourn for the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness of the many that have sinned before and have not repented. This then demonstrates with all certainty that repentance is an entirely different category than salvation itself. The two cannot logically be connected. Life application, there is a logical structure to salvation and then walking with the Lord, which is often twisted by those who are unwilling to research proper doctrine. Israel was redeemed from Egypt and then they were given the law. God did not unredeem them if they failed to adhere to the law by sending them back to Egypt. 
Rather, as a matter of fact, he said, you are not to go back to Egypt. He was very adamant about that several times. Anyway, rather, he gave penalties for disobedience. The same is true in the church today. We are saved unto holy living. We are not holy livers who are then saved. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. After that, we are to get our doctrine and our lives in order. That's what we do. There are boxes. When people mix up the boxes, that is when their, their uh, theology will be lacking. Do not mix the boxes. What is a box? A box is salvation. What is salvation? A box is what is proper living in Christ. A box is what is the rapture. Another box is what is um, the revealing of the Antichrist, and on and on. you got boxes that are given. When they overlap, all of a sudden, your boxes are no longer set. Set your boxes, especially with prime theology, salvation and the Trinity and things like that, and then you won't make the errors that so many people do. I mix the boxes or mix the dispensations. That's probably just as bad. You mix the dispensations. Jesus says, pray that you may stand worthy at the coming of the Son of Man. That is not speaking to anybody in the church. Not one person in the church was he referring to. He was speaking to Israel under the law. He had not yet been crucified. They didn't know what a church was. They had no idea. They're anticipating the kingdom. And that was the very last question that they asked him before he ascended. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea what they were supposed to do after all of this time. And he says, what did he do? You go out and get to work. Do the things that I told you. Okay? And he ascended. And they're like, he's gone. They had no idea what was coming. None. And so when he says, pray that you may stand worthy before the Son of Man, he is not talking to the church. Paul says that we are unworthy and we're saved by the grace of Christ. We don't need to pray if we're worthy. He has made us worthy. Okay? Boxes. Keep the boxes straight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of this word. Thank you for the wonderful beauty that it presents. And uh, I would pray that whatever has been said today, that it would be proper and that would be accurate and without uh, uh, infecting somebody with bad doctrine. If something was said that was incorrect, I pray that that is taken out of their minds and that they would be led down the right path in that. But it would never be intentional. We want to handle your word carefully and properly and to make sure that it is exalted because it is what tells us of Jesus and he is the one that reveals you to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we certainly pray for that baby once again, Ben, and that he'll be home soon with his mom and that he'll grow up happy and healthy and uh, someday be swooped out of here at the rapture with the rest of the saints when you come for us. And may, may that day be soon, Lord God. We certainly pray it. But until that day, we'll keep on working, we'll keep on studying, we'll keep on pursuing you with all of our heart and soul because you are certainly, certainly worthy of it. You are God and we are your creatures. Help us to remember that and to pursue you all the days of our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, great. It did.